Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Oliver Hartwich and I'm joined today by Joel Hernandez. Hello, good to talk to you, Oliver. Good to have you on the podcast. This is, sadly, an exit interview because you're leaving us after a bit more than three years with the initiative. And I thought it would be a really good idea to have this exit interview and look back at your time, not least because you're finishing your career with the initiative with a bang, another report based on the model that you've created over three years. But I think we'll start at the beginning. So you initially studied microbiology and then you somehow got sucked into economics and did a degree in more technical economics, econometrics, and then you joined the initiative and that was your first job. So that was a bit more than three years ago. Why did you join and what expectations did you have at the time? Yeah, so we'll start at the beginning, I guess. And so straight out of high school, I you know, wanted to become a doctor. And so I did first year health sciences down in Dunedin. Um, but part of that, I did actually some extracurricular papers, economics. And I ended up really loving it. And so, you know, I finished my my microbiology degree and, uh, you know, started uh economics and I ended up getting a master's in economics focusing on a, a bit of econometrics and and labor economics and so straight after I finished that you know I got a an email from Oliver and Eric and uh, you know I, I heard a bit of about the New Zealand initiative and some of the great work that they were doing and I said this sounds like a great place to go and so it's certainly an interesting choice for first job straight out of uni and then in a field in which you had obviously never worked in before, education. What expectations do you have? So I knew part of the job description was spending a lot of time in the data lab and that, you know, the focus would be on education. So I was that was definitely something I was looking forward to doing. So the job uh, sort of was expected. I spent, you know, half of my time in the data lab, locked in the data cave, doing all the, you know, the, all the research in, in the data lab. And then the other half was, you know, talking policy and uh, interacting with the sector. We should probably explain this a little bit to our listeners. You were working on the IDI. Actually, did you know what the IDI was before you joined us? I didn't really have a, an idea, no. Okay. So in, in which case, we should probably explain this to listeners too, because if, if even someone who studied econometrics didn't actually appreciate the IDI before joining us, I think many people out there probably wouldn't have heard that either. And, and frankly, I didn't really know until Eric told me about it um, a few years ago. So what is this fabled IDI? So the IDI is this wonderful wonderland for, for data nerds like me. Basically, what does it stand for, actually? Well, the IDI stands for Integrated Data Infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And basically, um, you can imagine that all of the government departments collect administrative data on everyone. Uh, so if you attend a secondary school or primary school in New Zealand, the Ministry of Education collects all of that, that, all, all of that data. You get paid every fortnight. You know, IRD collects all of that data on your income. Uh, you obviously answer the census every few years and you know there's a wealth of information in that but not just those main points of contact I mean MSD collects benefit data uh, justice and corrections collect you know whether Oliver gets a speeding ticket on his fast Mercedes oh, oh. <laughs> uh, rarely um, but every government does that data collection what makes the IDI so special so the IDI is really unique in that it it collects all of this administrative data and links them all together. So that means, you know, I attended secondary school in New Zealand. My data is collected to, you know, IRD. It's connected to the census. It's connected to, you know, my parents' information. So we actually have information on not just, you know, every student, 
but you know we can link them to your parents so they can figure out my parents education my parents income you know what country they immigrated from all of these wealth of information is actually uniquely collected in one place it sounds just a little bit orwellian so everything the government knows about you and your parents and in the future your children will be stored under your id number in one central database and not just your data but everybody's data everyone in new zealand in one database how dangerous is it to have this kind of database so stats new zealand recognizes you know the the great amount of data in here and the sensitivity that it has in there. So it's a pretty difficult task to just get into the lab in the first place. Uh, and even the research that's conducted in there, they pretty, they take a pretty hard line on, you know, getting confidential data out. So whatever research you produce, uh, it needs to be double checked and even triple checked by Statistics New Zealand. So you can't have any identifying data that goes out of the lab. So just to be clear, when you're in the lab, you cannot see my name. No. So everyone who's in there has a unique ID number mm -hmm. and that unique ID number is changed, you know, every several months. And so it is pretty confidential. So even if you tried, you would really struggle to figure out any personal private information about your neighbors or your parents or no. me or anyone else. Basically impossible. I mean, you don't even see names in there. You just see an ID number and then you see, you know, all the no normal administrative data that you might see. And still the IDI data lab is incredibly protected um how does it actually work in practice when you go to the data lab do you have to surrender your phone or can you take your computer into it or how does it work yeah so basically for researchers outside of government departments uh you get you know your unique id card and you sign in every morning at stats new zealand uh, and then you go up to a super secret elevator and you get to go to the data lab Uh, there's no internet connection, so the computer that you're on, you can't actually access and, you know, send your yourself some results through your email. You do have access uh, to the internet through your own phone, but again, that's not connected to the data lab. Um, so you can, you know, you have to do all your research sort of under lock and key, and to get those, you know, wonderful insights, Stats so New Zealand quite protected. to prove it. Yeah, very protected. And I think it took us a while until we got clearance for you. Yeah, so, you know, it takes a few months. Uh, The process was actually faster back then uh, because a we already had the project uh, you know in line, but you know it was a bit easier back then. It's actually getting more difficult to get into the IDI now. But for a young econometrician having access to this kind of database, that must like be um, a kid in a candy store, right? The IDI is, is really you could produce world first research in there and world leading research. No other country has anything like the IDI. And. You mentioned um, not that many people can get into it. I mean, government departments have access, but private organizations, it's quite rare actually to get into that data lab. Yeah, you know, there's not many uh, data, nerds, data nerds like me who have access. All right. So what were you actually doing then? So you can imagine that most people working on data have a spreadsheet and they might have a few columns and a few rows and maybe they produce some pretty colors and pretty graphs and, and pretty tables. You know, this is a much larger scale. You can imagine a giant Excel spreadsheet, but instead of having 10 rows and 10 uh, columns, you have, you know, 1 million or 5 million rows because, you know, there's 5 million people in New Zealand and you have 100 columns. So you have you have billions of data points on all the people in New Zealand. I actually find my own Excel spreadsheets confusing enough, so I wouldn't rather imagine what you were going through. But anyway, you did all of this, of course, with a purpose. You wanted to find out some stuff. So what was the task that we gave you basically back then? So 
the test was basically to create a, a school performance tool, but it, the school performance tool, the role was to solve a problem. And that's that New Zealand doesn't have, you know, a good way to evaluate schools in New Zealand. And that's a problem across all countries, you know. It's a difficult job to see how schools are performing because when you typically see academic results like NCA in a country, you know, they're a mix of the school and they're also a mix of the family background, you know, NCA results are a mix of, you know, what you brought into the school from your parents' education, their income and whatever ha else is happening at home to the actual school's effect. So I, my task was basically to create the school performance tool that could separate the contribution of family background from the contribution of the school so that we can get a better picture of how New Zealand secondary schools are performing. And to do that, you have to define the characteristics of students. So you have to not just look at um, the parents' um, income status. You have to look at are the parents actually educated themselves, because that probably makes a bit of a difference as well. So what were the factors then that you took into account when you were looking at different students? Yeah, so the main ones which are pretty common are, you know, the gender, ethnicity. Um, we also had parents' education, parents' income. But we had things like benefit status, we had corrections history, justice history, whether the kid was a refugee. We had even really sensitive information like child, youth and family notifications, you know, of abuse types. We could tell whether the parents were divorced. Uh, we also now know, you know, how many hours they were working, whether they were full time or part time. You know, this information just isn't available overseas in the same way that it is available in the IDI. So you pretty much had the complete picture of any student in that database. And I imagine once you have that for 500,000 students, so basically any student who's ever set an NCA exam, you can calculate backwards and you can say, okay, this individual factor, whether the parents were divorced or whether the parents had a PhD or whether the parents earn more than $150,000 a year, this factor is worth that much then to education outcomes, or at least it predicts it. Yeah, so the great thing about that is it means that we can fairly evaluate all the secondary schools in the country. So, you know, we know that students who go to a DSL-10 school are vastly different to students who attend a DSL-5 or a DSL-1 school. What we're able to do using the tool was basically hold all of those factors constant or equal so that we can get a picture of how the schools are really performing. So what are the most important social factors predicting education success? So one of the strongest strongest predictors of educational attainment is uh, parents' education. So uh, for example, to put this into sort of perspective, the difference between uh, the, the median performing school in New Zealand going to the top performing school in New Zealand is about one standard deviation. So that's sort of the, the difference between the average and the best. But moving from a parent, uh, moving from a student who has two parents with no educational attainment, so below high school certificate, uh, to moving to a kid with two parents who have both postgraduate qualifications, that difference is also one standard deviation. And so you can see, you know, quite the magnitude of effect of, you know, a good school. Now, we're not saying that, you know, every parent should go and get a PhD, but, you know, parents' education is sort of correlated or, or linked to, you know, how much value they might have put in education, also maybe how much, you know, uh, ability they have to, you know, teach their own children outside of school. So obviously parents' um, education attainment itself, big predictor for students. What about family structures? Yeah, so we know that, you know, parents' divorce status has, you know, a small but, you know, contributing effect. You know, all these individual effects like, 
like for example girls or female students have you know a slight advantage over boys uh you know ethnicity also factors in even to even after you account for all those background factors in what way uh so we know that asian students as well as female students have you know advantage over sort of you know caucasian kiwi students uh maori and pacifica students do still have a small disadvantage even accounting for family background like parent income and education so these are basically cultural factors because you account for everything else already yes so in technical terms you're basically running multiple regressions over all of this and at the end of it you have say a pakeha kid from Christchurch, maybe a boy, and you know the parents have fantastic um, education record themselves and a high income, and then you know with, with all of these factors, it is quite likely that child would perform relatively well. Yes. And conversely, with other factors, you wouldn't. Yes. So what have you done then? So basically what we're able to do is, you know, we get a, a comprehensive picture of you know what the student brings with them you know their ethnicity their gender their own parents background and we look at you know what sort of nca results or university entrance results we predict that they were going to get and then we look at their actual results and what we find is some students in some schools you know perform well above what they're expected to do and we have some schools that perform you know as expected and we also have some students in schools who perform below that mm-hmm. and what we're able to do is get about 500 school contextualized value added scores or we just call them estimates and see you know some schools are performing well above expected and some schools are performing below it as expected so just to explain what you do is you take the specific student population of each secondary school and these are all the schools that offer nca and university entrance qualifications and you know exactly what student populations they had and you know everything about the students and their parents And then you say, okay, you had a relatively easy population to deal with and we would expect you to get really, really good outcomes out of that. Or you dealt with relatively challenging kids and let's let's see what you got. What did you find? So we actually found that, you know, before we adjusted for family background, we sort of got the results we were expecting. Higher decile schools get higher results on average because they deal with more, you know, advantaged communities. And that wasn't a surprise. And that's typically what you see in league tables. And that's actually how we got the myth that DESA was a proxy for school quality, you know, parents. When in fact, you're actually measuring student background. Yeah. You know, we basically saw what the kids brought with them. Mm-hmm. But what was really interesting and, you know, what was really important is that once we separated the effect of family background, You know, on average, there was no difference across deciles. And we actually provided the first empirical evidence that decile is not a proxy for school quality. How long did that initial stage of your research take you? So I probably spent, you know, the better half of a year and probably a bit in the data lab doing, you know, this research. And then, you know, another few months uh, writing the report. So it was about a year and a half before we produced the first a full report. It took, I remember, a few months to even get the data out because everything needed to be cleared several stages, right? Yeah, you know, that we, we had to be pretty creative in how we got the results out because of the, the restrictions that Stats New Zealand put over us. I mean, we couldn't even put out, say, a graph where an individual school anonymized was one point in a graph. We had to get really creative on how we got things out. Yeah, I remember that, and it was relatively absurd from my memory if you just take a scattered diagram out with 500 dots and each dot is a school, but none of the dots is identified, even that was not permissible because at least the dot was identifiable. 
even though we couldn't do this without going back into the lab. But anyway, that's, I think, how we de dealt with that at the time. Now, none of this would be possible in any other country because no other country has a database like ours, right? No. I mean, the United States is catching up. And, you know, with some of the restrictions that Stats New Zealand have, you know, other countries are getting pretty close. Uh, but right now, New Zealand has this world-first database. So, so how did it feel actually doing this work when you knew the, you were the only person in the world doing something like that? I think you feel pretty privileged to be able to have, you know, access to do this kind of research. And I think, you know, there's a lot of responsibility with the, the research that you do. And I think we've gotten a lot of great, useful, valuable insights from the data lab. Right. So we took the data out of the lab. We prepared a draft report and then we started briefing people on that and what we found. And... Um, I remember we had one meeting together with the education minister. That would have been a highlight of your career, I imagine, briefing the minister and quite a few ministerial officials on what was possible. How did you find that? It was really great. And, you know, one of the surprising things, but I guess also not surprising, was that, you know, the ministers were shocked that they could do this kind of information and that, you know, the minister of education could see the results. But, you know, The Ministry of Education had not even done this for him, you know, out of their staff of 3,000, you know, and we have, you know, just a small think tank producing this kind of research, and he was shocked. He also liked um, the results. Yeah, the results, you know, are really positive, because what we found was that, you know, while on average there was no difference across deciles, we still found high performers, you know, these are schools in the top 10% of all schools in the country, and what we found that these high-performing schools were present across all decels, both high and low. And we actually highlighted that there were 42 decel one and two schools that performed in the top 25% of all schools in the country that, you know, are not currently being recognized for their success. I remember Chris Hipkins actually said to his officials, um, isn't that what I always said? We have some really good decel one, decel two schools. And, and for the first time, actually, we could prove it because we had the data. So I think he was totally um, taken aback by what we found and, and, and was happy about it. I remember actually um, he asked his officials, well, why does this take a small think tank and why can't we do this? And actually what happened afterwards? I mean, he could have run with that. Yeah, I mean, as we know, the bureaucracy runs pretty slowly and, uh, you know, things like these take a long time. Uh, policy, you know, from an inception of an idea like we had three years ago can take years for it to get implemented. It could have been a fantastic tool, of course, for him also to check on the performance of the Education Review Office. Yes. So, I mean, Education Review Office, they send people into schools and then typically these uh, visits are announced so the school knows um, the ERO people are coming, so they're watering all the plants and they're cleaning up all the classrooms and then, of course, they get a relatively good report. Whereas with the model, you cannot really bribe the data, you just push that button and then you see all the schools performing, right? Exactly. So our tool is actually a really good complement to, you know, the education review office. You know, our tool is really great in that it can fairly evaluate all the secondary schools, you know, objectively. But, you know, I think the next step in that is, okay, what are these top performing schools doing? You know, we can see that they have great results, but, you know, it, what's really important and what's really interesting is finding out what these top performing schools are doing so that we can spread that best practice to, you know, all the other schools in the country. I imagine it's not just the minister and the ministry who would be interested in the results of your model, but also individual schools and especially the boards of trustees. Because 
if you're on a board of trustees and you want to check on the performance of your headmaster, your principal, um, you would want to see how the school does given the student population it serves. So after we released that report, of course, a few schools contacted us about that. Yeah, we had three schools reach out to us. Uh, we had a, a DSL-1, a DSL-9, and a DSL-10 school. And, you know, they were really interested to see how they were performing. And, and could you tell them? Yeah, so we, we, we were able to write up a contract that allowed us to get their individual school results out. And we were I mean, the initial response was, of course, we can't talk to you because we cannot take this legally out of the data lab unless, yeah. and then I think you had to negotiate with Stats New Zealand. Yeah, after we jumped through ho a few hoops with Stats New Zealand, we were eventually able to get uh, you know the results out. But even then it was difficult, right? Yeah. Because you had to get several permissions from the schools all along the way. Exactly. So what happened with the three schools? So we eventually got the three sets of results out and we were able to actually create three case studies and create the types of school reports that should that the Ministry of Education should be providing to each of those schools. Uh, but we did it for them. So we created this these three reports and created, you know, three case studies. And so all of these schools believed they were doing a fantastic job, but did they? Yeah, we actually found one school that we were able to name and highlight, and that was Southern Cross Campus. And this was a, a DSL-1 school uh, in, in South Auckland that served, you know, predominantly a Pacifica community. And, you know, on the raw results, they were sort of in the bottom 25% because of the sort of community that they served. But actually, once our school performance tool adjusted for their family background, this school was in the top 25% of all schools in the country when we adjusted for university, when we looked at university entrance. Amazing. And the other two schools? Yeah, the other two schools we can't name because, you know, their principals didn't allow us to name them. Um, but we can talk about the results that we got without naming them. Yeah, so uh, one of the schools was a, a DSL 10 school and they performed in the top sort of 25% of all schools in the country. Uh, but they did move slightly down. They they still ended up in the top 25%, uh, you know, which just shows, you know, even high DSL schools also perform well. Uh, and we also had another sort of DSL 9 school, and they were sort of a middle performing school, even after we adjusted for family background. But in each of these two cases, it would have been interesting to parents in the school and to the Board of Trustees to figure that out and, and to find out, okay, school is doing okay, but not spectacularly well, or the school is doing really well, but actually we're sliding. Exactly. W one of the reasons why these schools reached out to us was, you know, the board of trustees of, of one of these schools actually reached out to us because they were really interested to see how their school was performing because they recognized they just didn't really know because there was no data. The problem is, of course, now we have three schools um, that initially gave us permission to get their data out and then two withdrew it. But in each of these cases, um, the parents would probably be super interested in that. Yeah, I think parents are really, you know, there's a disservice to them that they just don't have any information. So we just can't blame them that they're using Decel as a proxy for school quality. That's all they have. Mm. Even though we know, of course, Decel doesn't really tell you anything. Yeah, exactly. So that was one application of the model. But now that you had built the model, you could use it for all sorts of things. And I think the media knew that. So I remember that the New Zealand Herald contacted you. What happened then? Yeah, so one of the biggest ongoing debates in New Zealand is, you know, private versus state schools. You know, if you go to a private school, parents are forking out, you know, you know, $20,000 every year for their kids to attend school. And, you know, one of the big debates is, is that worth it? Uh, and actually what we found was that, 
you know, on average, actually state integrated schools, these are, these are predominantly like Catholic or religious schools, um, they were actually, you know, on average outperforming private schools and state schools by, you know, a small margin. Well, that's interesting. So there are plenty of applications then for this model. And the most recent one is actually the research note you produced just before you're leaving. And um, that looks at later life outcomes from education. Because we're not learning for school, we're learning, of course, because we want to have a successful and decent life afterwards. So what did you find there? Yeah, so what was really interesting here was that we actually found you know, a number of low decile schools that were in that top performing category uh, for whether their kids completed a tertiary qualification. Uh, so when we wanted to look at later life outcomes, one of the most common ones is whether kids progress and whether they complete a tertiary qualification. And actually what we found was when we looked at whether kids completed a tertiary qualification subject to them enrolling in the first place, actually low and high deciles are the are skewed in the high performing category. So there are plenty of applications, except you're leaving now, but that doesn't mean that the journey is over because the model that you've developed is licensed free of charge under Creative Commons and it sits in the data lab. So what do you think should happen with that now? I think there's massive opportunity for more researchers in the data lab to use our school performance tool and get more insights. And who are these researchers? Where where are they from? Uh, well, we actually have some PhD students uh, building on the work. You know, the I've done the hard work of building the code base at the start, but there's lots of you know, sequels and and other things that researchers can use but what, what we really want is the Ministry of Education to adopt our tool which is freely available in the data lab for them to implement and you've talked to the ministry about that yeah we've had long conversations with you know high-level officials at the ministry as well as the Ministry of Education and they're keen but you know things are slow moving when it comes to policy it has so much potential the model is developed free of charge they didn't even have to do that it took us more than a year to get there why don't they just take it and run with it I think, uh, you know, they're partly busy with building the equity index, uh, and that's the replacement of the DSL system. So, you know, that, that is a promising area that, you know, they're going to improve the way that schools are funded. But, you know, that doesn't fundamentally solve the problem of a lack of school performance measures. So hopefully in the future, hopefully, you know, sooner rather than later, uh, our school performance tool can be built on top of the equity index and use data in the IDI to give, you know, principals, board of trustees and parents, you know, the data that they deserve. Well, Joel, I think you've done something remarkable in the three years you've been here. You've created a model that no other country has. You have actually created a model that could revolutionize the way education policy works because we could also use it for all sorts of other things. Just checking whether individual policies work at a school level. I think the applications are almost endless. Um, looking back at that job, and it was your first job, we should remind listeners, I mean, this is something that you've done straight out of university. Um, what is your main conclusion from all of that experience? I think probably one of the biggest conclusions is that, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into policy and uh, sometimes really great research influences it sometimes it doesn't and i think um hopefully uh the new zealand initiative uh can influence you know decision makers in the beehive and, and ministries to create better evidence-based policy in the future and for you the journey goes on you're going to the 
other side of power. You're going straight into a ministry. I think can we name the ministry? Yes, yeah, so I'm going to go into the Ministry of Health in uh, in next week, and I'm going to be working on the DHB restructure. So hopefully, I can uh, get some better cost benefit analysis going into the work going in there. And that will be less focused on data and you will not spend time in the IDI anymore, which you'll probably miss. Yeah, so I think I'm going to take a small break from uh, the data lab and hopefully, you know, meet a lot of people in the in the ministry and hopefully influence them and hopefully get some economics into into their policies. So after all of these years actually battling with the bureaucracy, you become part of it yourself. <laughs> you know, it's hard, it's hard to avoid living in Wellington. <laughs> no, that's, that's true. Well, Thank you so much for the work you've done over the years. I think you've uh, actually left a massive contribution to education policy development here. And um, all the best for your future job. And um, who knows, you might be back one day and we might send you back into the data lab for some more data crunching. Thank you, Oliver. It's been a pleasure and I've learned a lot over the last three years. Thank you, Joel, and all the best. Cheers. Cheers.